Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. We want to welcome you guys to Rock Harbor Church and those online that are watching here locally or around the world. I know there's people in South Africa, there's people in Australia, people around the world watching us right here in Bakersfield, California. Isn't that crazy? Anyway, um, we're in our series in Exodus, and we're going to be in chapter 6, and what we've entitled this is Staying on the Path, Part 2, and we're looking at a, a situation that's similar to ours right now. It's very apropos for what we're going through. Israel has been told that they're going to get delivered. God's going to do this. So Moses went in and told Pharaoh to let him go. Pharaoh says, no. In fact, you've made me so mad, I'm going to increase the workload. They're going to have to get their own straw to make their bricks. And so it's really caused a major problem for the Hebrews. They're suffering now even more than before. Some of them are being beaten to death now because they can't make the quotas of bricks. They've blamed Moses. And it just seems that everything's in chaos. And so they're kind of in a state of disillusionment of what's happening. Moses, you said God was going to deliver, and now Pharaoh is not letting us go. And so they feel like they're in a mess, so to speak. And Moses is really disillusioned because he thought, man, Pharaoh's going to let him go, even though Moses was told he's not going to let you go. And what you're seeing here is similar to what we're going through right now. The whole world is collapsing right in front of you. It's breaking down. And a lot of people want to put their head in the sand about it, but it's really having a major problem out there. And you can see some of these prophecy updates. Man, it's no joke. This is no conspiracy theory. Forced vaccinations. And I saw even today some articles, and then even yesterday I heard Billy Crone talk about this whole thing about this genetic monstrosity that they're starting to do with messing with our DNA codes to make, uh, I don't know if they're human or not, just things that... Uh, go beyond being human. Like they're splicing DNA with animal DNA and, or they can tamper with some certain parts of DNA and make you stronger. Elon Musk is thinking about putting implantable chips in your head to give you a 1,000 IQ and making super soldiers, kind of like what you see with Marvel Comics and people having special abilities through the DNA. And you're thinking, where am I at? What is this? Oh, it's Genesis 6. And as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What was happening in Genesis 6? A DNA hybrid was being created, right? We're at that level now. So not, let alone all the other junk that's going on. We got human beings that have no control over them, splicing DNA, making chimeras and different weird animals. I saw a mouse with an ear growing on its back. Did you ever see that one? They grew a, a human ear on the mouse. Now they say they don't even need a host anymore. That they can grow these things in petri dishes and make, you know, wombs for them to grow in. It's, it's Jurassic Park, man, as Billy Crone had said. It's crazy. And so what's happening is a lot of believers are losing their bearings. And it's very confusing time. Don't know which way is up or down. It's crazy. And then we know intuitively about the coming of our Lord and all that's happening. And so people are saying, where's the Lord? I, I want him to come back now. I'm tired of watching all this. And sometimes that period between the coming of the Lord and this chaos that we're in causes disillusionment in a lot of believers. And they start losing their way. They start veering off the path because... Obviously, they see that, oh my goodness, life is not going to be as I thought it's going to be. 
All the plans that I had for my life are going to probably change. It's called the new reset. That's not my words. That's their words. The new reset where you're going to lose more rights. And you're thinking, wait wait a second. I had my plans for my life, and it's not going to go that way. And then starts that delusion happening. And then what happens is people start veering off the path. And uh, disillusionment or discouragement is the biggest instigator for getting believers off the path. And so that's why you're even seeing now in churches kind of an anti-prophecy where they're actually scoffing at the second coming or scoffing at the return of the Lord in the rapture. You know, where is this coming? We're hearing that from other believers, other pastors. Where is this coming? And so because of all of that going on, it makes the path that we're on very difficult to stay on. And even today, and you're walking on trails, you're going to see warning signs not to get off the path. You know, stay on the, the path to avoid snakes and stuff like that. Unless you feel like flat tires, stay on the path. Or unless you like flat tires, lions and giraffes ahead for your safety, please stay on the path. Yeah, because there's lions on, off the path. And so we see those signs, and that's the same thing going on spiritually today. People are kind of getting off the path. They're having a hard time coping with things. Okay, so what God's going to do for Moses and what he's going to do for the children of Israel is the same principle he'll do for us to make sure we stay on the path ahead. And what he's going to do, we've already seen last week, is reveal who he is. He is Yahweh and explains who he is. We we looked at that last week. And now today, he's going to explain what he does. Who he is and what he does. And those are two fundamental principles you have to maintain in your walk with the Lord to stay on the path. You have to know who he is and what he does. Because if you lose those, if you lose who God is and what he does, that's what causes the drift. If you think God doesn't care for you, if you think he's not interested in the world, if you think he's, you know, he's letting this all get out of control, if you think like that, you'll get off the path. He's, he, actually, he's in more in control than you've ever seen because he's, everything he said is happening, is happening. If you lose what he's doing in the world, you'll think everything's chaos, that these Antifa, Black Lives Matter, revolutionary communist groups are in charge, that George Soros is in charge, and these crazy nut jobs are in charge. No, they're not. God is working right now. So it's knowing who he is and that he is working keeps us steady on the path in faith. And so those principles are going to work in our lives. So we're going to look at the action part and then look at the responsibility to that action. So the two principles I want to point out, last week I did this, knowing and accepting the reality of who God is. We did that. And then this week is knowing and accepting the responsibility of responding to God's work in our lives. So he's going to talk about the work he's going to do in Israel's life, and that's where we go for in our application. You and I, because God is active in the world, have a responsibility in our actions to that action. As God works, we work. If he's acting, we act. There's never a time where we just sit on the spiritual couch and do nothing. So what God is trying to say is, I'm the God whose name is a verb. Yahweh is a verb. I'm the one that's, in, that's directly involved in your life and the world. And that's what he's going to show Israel today. So with that being said, let's, let's jump in and look at the activity of God that he's going to do for Israel. And this is in verse, uh, we'll start in verse 4 of chapter 6. And this is entitled Staying on the Path. Anyway, it says, I have also established my covenant with them. Talking about the Israelites. The covenant he's referring to is the Abrahamic covenant. 
to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. So what's happening here is, it's again, a reference to the land covenant that's embedded in the Abrahamic covenant. And there's that piece of land that God gave Israel. And it's still valid today, by the way. And so what he is saying is, the promises I gave to the patriarchs, they trusted me on those promises, but they never saw it come to fruition. Now, Israel, I'm going to act. And when I act, you're going to see me give you this land. By the way, the land has, was never conquered fully by Joshua, nor has it ever been fully conquered. And that land promise still awaits the Jews in the future when Messiah when he comes back, gives them the totality that, of everything that Abraham promised to them about this land. But even today, as a point of application, this summer, Israel is taking back its land. I mentioned this last week, taking back parts of Judea and Samaria, which belong to them. And, of course, the UN and every other organization out there would oppose that, but that's what's happening in July. And you know what? How is that prophetically significant? That is the hills, the mountains of Judea and Samaria. By the way, if you read Ezekiel, that's where the armies of Gog of Magog fall on those hills when God destroys that invading army. So now Israel has control of those areas, those mountainous regions right there along the Rift Valley. It's very prophetically significant, by the way. So pay attention to that. Watch that as that happens in Israel this next month. Anyway... The idea is, when he makes this statement, what God is saying when he told Abraham is that he's promising Israel an exodus. He already told Abraham a long time ago in Genesis, I'm going to give this to your people, but your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years. And I'm going to have to take them out of that area in the land that, they, that doesn't belong to them to take them back to the land I promised you. So, what you have to understand, embedded in the Abrahamic covenant is the promise of Exodus, a promise of exodus, not just here, but furthermore. Let me explain this. If he's going to give them land and they're in a foreign land enslaved, it implies that God has to free them and to put them back in their land, which he will do. So it implies an exodus. Okay. That being the case is what you'll see through biblical history is that there are multiple exoduses that come from this promise for the Jews. This is important. So you'll have the exodus that will happen here in Egypt. Then you'll have an exodus out of Babylon, when they're, they're stuck there in Babylon. And then you'll see, well, even currently, an exodus just happened in 1948. What do you mean? The promise was that I'm going to take you from all nations in unbelief and put you back in the land, which happened in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. Now, that was a promise of exodus of unbelief. It's happened, it's occurred, you've witnessed that. In the future, there will be an exodus out of the, all the nations again, in belief though, and that scattering will happen from the Antichrist. So we have yet one more exodus to see of Israel. Now we won't be here for that, we'll actually come back with Messiah to rescue them, but that will be that last exodus, and that's all embedded in the Abrahamic promise of exodus. Now, one more application to you and I. Even with our salvation, there is an exodus in our salvation. We were pulled out of the world to be saved, to be redeemed, just like Israel was, to be a chosen people, the church, 
Keep the two distinct. Israel and the church are distinct. But the same exodus happened to us individually, spiritually, as we were pulled out of the world and into the kingdom of light and out of the kingdom of darkness. So the pattern you'll see with Israel as a nation is actually the same pattern you'll see salvation-wise in your own relationship with the Lord. He redeemed us. I'll make some connections there in just a bit about that when we talk about this. But anyway, let's move on. Verse 5. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. Now, the idea is he hears their groaning. Now, here's the deal. They've been groaning for hundreds of years. They've been under enslavement. It's gotten worse, no doubt about it. But if you recall, when does God respond to the groaning? He only responds to the groaning when they call for his help. Now, that's an important point. You can be groaning and groaning and groaning through life and having a tough time. But until you and I humble ourselves and say, I need help, then God will deliver the help. But if you don't ask for help, if you don't ask for his grace and mercy, you will keep groaning because your pride is keeping you from asking for help. And so this suffering that Israel went through went as long until they said, I need help. And that comes to the point of everyone has to come to the end of themselves. Not only in salvation, that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you and I are spiritually bankrupt, but also in our sanctification. If there's besetting sins that keep dragging us down, then the issue God is saying is, you want free from that? Then ask me for help and admit that you can't get over this. Admit that you can't pull yourself up from your bootstraps and do this through your own energies. Admit that you must need my power. And until then, then God acts. And that's why he says, I've heard their groaning, now I'm going to respond because they've asked for my help. Okay. And he goes, and then I have remembered my covenant. The idea in the Hebrew is a Hebrew idiom of I remember. It didn't mean that God forgot. It meant that I'm now going to take action on those promises I made to Israel. I will remember, so I'll take action. The same thing is true for you and I. Don't think that God has, quote unquote, forgotten the church. We're going through perilous times right now. The church is apostatizing. And the remnant's getting smaller and smaller. It's like in the, the first service I said, it's, it's, the, it's getting so small, I'm starting to know everyone's name in the remnant. Now it's getting so small. But at the end of the day, God at some point is going to pull the trigger on the rapture. And he's going to take action. And he's going to say, enough. Now, when he does that, that's according to his timing. I, we only are promised prior to the tribulation. But the point is, just like we see with Israel... Now is the time. God's going to act. And then he's going to act for us. But as long as we're here, he wants us to do something. I'll get to that later in the application. But it's kind of the same principle when you compare the two. I remembered my coming. God will vent. Now is going to act. Now, with that being stated, let's do a sidebar. Some of you who like archaeology, this might be right up your alley. But I think it's important now to understand how the Israelites were suffering and how the archaeology proves it. And I want to take this time to go off. And if you ever see the movie Patterns of Evidence, uh, I think you, you should uh, rent it, check it out. I think it's fantastic. I talked to them this week, and they let me use some of their pictures from their video. But anyway, I want to show you this because it shows you the groaning of archaeology of what a Semitic people there that they have found and what they went through. 
The first thing I want to show you is Avaris. Let's show you, this is the um, satellite picture of Egypt, obviously. And this is, you know, obviously where the Nile Delta goes out. And you can see how fertile it is. This is where the Israelites settled. So if you see that yellow circle over there, that yellow circle indicates where Israel was at at the time. We know it as Avaris. Now let me show you another picture real quick archaeologically. This comes from patterns of evidence. But Avaris was the older town. And we're talking about the end of the 13th dynasty of Egypt. And then later on, another city was built on top of it called Ramesses. This is what the Bible referred to in the location of where the Israelites were. Now, most people say, well, that's, Ramesses is a later establishment. The Exodus must have happened later. No, what happens is the writer, this is Moses, uses the word Ramesses because it's a modern term. It would be like... New York City. Do you know what New York City's name was before it was called New York City? It was called New Amsterdam. And then it became New York City. So where the Israelites originally were, were Avaris, but then Ramesses was built on top of it. So the Bible writer uses the word Ramesses to locate the location. It would be like saying it's New York, even though they lived at a time when it was called New Amsterdam, if that makes sense. So archaeologically, the older one is Avaris. Okay, so they have done digs there in Avaris, and there's about 618 acres there in Avaris, and these are basically a recreation of what the archaeology looks like in Avaris. This is what the Semitic housing would have looked like, and this is what the area that the Israelites would have been in would look like. You can see the architecture of the homes, very Semitic. That's not Egyptian architecture. That is northern Syrian architecture. Archaeology proves that there was a major major Semitic people living here. And they had certain interesting things that would indicate that they are the Hebrews of the Exodus. Uh, let me show you another house real quick. This is a, another typical Syrian type of house that's found in the area. This house is very special. This house was flattened and then another palace was built on top of it. But that palace was, the inhabitant of that, that house was a non Egyptian, but he was very powerful, and he had a palace built on top of this house. That palace, we think, is Joseph. And this, this was underneath the palace. It was flattened, but this is what the archaeology has seen. You're looking at possibly the house of Jacob when he was in his final days in Goshen, and then the palace of Joseph was put on top of this house. This is classic uh, Syrian housing. This is not Egyptian housing. The Egyptians did not build like this. And so we can definitely see that the influence of Abraham being in Haran, which was in northern Syria, they brought that architecture down into Goshen, and that's how the Israelites live. Now, a couple of things I want to note about this. Dr. David Roll, in the Patterns of Evidence, notes several things about the people group that are living here, archaeology-wise. Well, he, what he, that they know is that there's an increase in prosperity in this location, a definite increase in prosperity. Then, all of a sudden, it's like the prosperity just decreases instantly. It just shuts down. Everything goes down uh, prosperous-wise. And then you're looking at impoverished people living there, Semitic people. And then we start seeing, archaeologically, a shortage of life in the people living there. And when they look at the bones of the individuals who live there and are still in the tombs, the bones will have what's called Harris lines on them. 
And the bones with Harris lines, it means that they've suffered malnutrition, they've had increased workloads, they attest to a shortage of nutrients and a very difficult life. The bones also indicate that the average age of death is about 32 to 34 years old. It also indicates that these people were under some type of duress as far as slavery, heavy workloads, or whatnot, based on the Harris lines and the different bones in that location. Now, what they do find also in this area in Avaris is very high, extremely high mortality rates among, among newborns. Shouldn't shock you, right, if you connect the dots, right? And of the children's graves, there's children's graves, because what they notice with these Semitic people is unlike the Egyptians who buried their people away, these Semitic people buried their own ancestors under their house. So as you drill down past, down the house, underneath the house is the graves of the people. And the children are there as well. And there's a lot of children. So between ages 1 through 10, what they have found is that 50% of the children's death occurred in three months of their childhood. That should relate to something we already know. What's Pharaoh's edict? All the newborns, the males, are to be killed, right? And we're seeing that archaeologically in this place. When they do examine the graves of the adults there, as you're seeing right now, that survived, and again, they didn't live very long, 32 to 34 years old, 60% of them are females. Only 40% are males, which again shows that there was reduction in the male population in this Semitic people living in Navaris. Here's a couple other things. As you see with these graves, and there's different pictures I have there from Patterns of Evidence, and again, PatternsofEvidence.com if you want more information on this. Notice how the people are laid on their side. When you see that, that is an indication that is a non-Egyptian. This is how the Semitic people put people to rest. And notice in the grave there are pots and pans and different artifacts that are not Egyptian but are actually Semitic that you would see in somewhere in northern Syria. And they would, they would lay the person on their side and, instead of on their back. That is classic Semitic, not Egyptian. So these are not Egyptians. Also, we understand archaeologically that these people were shepherds because in their graves, they bury their animals with them. Sometimes the animal is buried with the person. And so they'll have goats and sheep and livestock that are buried alongside the graves and they're laid on the side as well. The funny thing about this is more and more evidence comes out about this. They have found lists of slaves in this area that have Hebrew names on them. It's amazing. And then there's another part of Egypt. I think it's about 120 miles south of Avaris. But there's another group there, and this is in Cahun, Egypt. And you see that little square cut out? There's another group of Semitic people living in this area that also have the same archaeological things happening to them. They're enslaved, they were, they're impoverished, and then what we noticed about this group and the one in Havaris is they were suddenly there and suddenly not there. That like everything, they just disappeared off the scene immediately with no trace. And the funny thing about this, and you can see the recreation of what these are Semitic homes in this Cahoon area, and the abandonment happened immediately. We also see something very interesting in these pits in the areas. There are dead bodies that were thrown into these pits without burial. It was kind of like these people were leaving, 
and there was dead people, and they just threw them in pits, and you can see how they were scattered. They're stacked upon each other because somebody was leaving in a hurry, and they just pushed the bodies in pits. And you see these pits all along. So they didn't have a proper burial because somebody didn't have time to bury these people. Well, if you start doing the archaeological research and you start connecting the dots, what is God saying? It really did happen. And here's the proof. Here's the archaeological proof that you need. What else do you need to understand? You know, he's telling the whole world, basically, through archaeology. We find an interesting writer in the 3rd century B.C. He's an Egyptian. His name is Manetho. He was an Egyptian priest. And um, he said this. He said, in the reign of Dudimos, which is exactly what we have seen, that would be the pharaoh of Moses is Dudimos, not Ramesses. Ramesses is too late. That's wrong. The chronology is wrong with Ramesses. It's Dudimos. It happened in the late 13th century with the Exodus. Well, anyway, this is what this guy says. In his reign, God, singular, not gods. He says, God, singular, smote the Egyptians, and because of the smiting of God, foreigners of an obscure race invaded from the north and they conquered the land without striking a blow because God smote the Egyptians. And if you look in history, the Hyksos is the ones who came out of the northern Syria area into Egypt and there's a period of time in Egyptian history where Semitic people or foreigners controlled Egypt. And it came right after, according to this guy, right after God smote the Egyptians. Well, that would make total sense from a historical standpoint. If God smote the Egyptians, and he did, and there's no Egyptian army because the Egyptian army is in the Red Sea dead, then an invading force from the north came in and took over, and they're called the Hyksos, took over the Egyptian dynasty for a period of time until the Egyptians finally got it back. But that would explain the Hyksos coming in and taking over Egypt during that time. There was no army to fight them. So what does that do for you and I? When you look at the archaeology, it solidifies our faith. It increases our faith. You already believe in the Exodus because of faith. But it, it brings us to more strength in our faith to say, look, this really did happen. And here's the evidence behind it. Let's go back to the text I wanted to do that just because I think it's extremely important to see that kind of stuff because it doesn't get talked about a lot. Anyway, in verse 6, Therefore, save the children of Israel. Now, what he's about to say is four promises, four action promises that God's going to give, and I want you to understand that they relate to the Passover's four cups. And I'll go through this, but in the Passover, there's four cups. These four statements go in line with the four cups of Passover. So I'll explain each one of them. Okay, so here's the promises God's going to say in the action he's going to take. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. Now, we already talked about that last week, all the implications of his personal name. But here's the promise. Here's the action point. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is called the cup of sanctification. This is God calling Israel out to be set apart for a specific task and a special task. Now, let me make kind of a side note again, a sidebar about this. Note that they are called out for a purpose. We already know what the purpose is, is to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring, to, to bring the scriptures, to usher in the scriptures, and eventually to usher in the Messiah himself. 
So Israel has been called God's people for a specific reason. But let's, let's note this. Our understanding of God's calling, his election, or his choosing is choosing a corporate entity to do this job. Israel is already in a saved condition. According to Exodus chapter 4, they have believed what Moses and Aaron said, so they have been saved spiritually. Note the order. Saved. And then they're called to be a special people, to be a light to the Gentiles. Notice the order. Unfortunately, deterministic Christianity, Calvinism, or Reformed theology, puts the cart before the horse. And if you understand the Hebrew Scriptures, what's happening is the mistake that Calvinism makes is it doesn't understand what calling and election is according to the Old Testament and what it meant. It meant to be called to a special purpose, not individual salvation, because you could be a part of the nation of Israel and not be saved. But the nation is called to do this. Now, there's a remnant in the nation that does the work, of course. And there's a non-remnant that doesn't do anything. But it has nothing really to do with salvation per se. It has to do with their calling, what God has called them to do. And the same is true for you and I. You have been saved for a reason. You expressed your faith into the invitation that Yahweh gave you through Jesus Christ. You've accepted it. And now you are called to do something. Whatever that calling is, is according to your abilities that God gave you, your gifting, and your experiences. And so the question then remains for you and I, okay, what am I called to do? What does God want to do with my life? In the midst of all this chaos, what does he want me to do in this darkness? And that's what he's doing with Israel. He's calling them out of the darkness to be a light to the Gentiles. So that's the cup in Passover called the cup of sanctification. Setting apart is what it means. Now look at the next thing. I will rescue you from their bondage. The term rescue is, it's funny, all these words, I will rescue, I know in English it looks like it's like a future, but in the Hebrew, it's in the Hebrew perfect, or we call this the prophetic perfect. perfect. It would be like God saying, yeah, I rescued you, and it hasn't happened. But with God, it's already happened, per se, because it's, it's a done deal. Once he says it, it's a done deal. So that's where you get the prophetic perfect in the Hebrew, which doesn't really show up in your English. But it's like a, if God says it, it's a done deal. Anyway, I will rescue you from their bondage. Done deal. Okay, the bondage word is yoke, but it refers to then in the Passover, this is the second cup. This is what's called the cup of plagues or the cup of deliverance. And so if you notice... This is the cup of judgment that will come upon Egypt. And this is what he's going to do to Egypt to free the Israelites from that yoke, that bondage. Spiritually speaking, we were under the bondage of our sin nature. We were under the bondage of Satan. Satan was our master before we came to faith in Christ. And so we have been released from the bondage of the sin nature, and we've been released from the bondage of our old master, Satan. So you can see even in, in spiritual terms, it goes in line with the, the physical, getting them physically out of their bondage with Israel. And this is what we call the cup of deliverance, and the plagues will be used to do that. Then we move into the third cup, or the third promise, and it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. This 
obviously is what we call the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. I will buy you off the auction block. You will no longer be a slave to Egypt. I am buying you. I own you now. And it's the same thing true with us. Now, this cup of redemption, obviously it comes with an outstretched arm and great judgments. In order for this to happen, somebody is going to be punished. And guess in this picture who's punished? The Egyptians, and particularly Pharaoh, is going to be punished for the illegal enslavement of the Israelites. But through the punishment, someone goes free. Now follow the principle. If I take this to what Jesus did, he's punished, he took the wrath of God, and then we go free. You see the same principle. Someone's punished as a substitute, and then someone gets to go free. And so that's what the cup of redemption is. And then... If you recall, later on, we'll look at this. What was sacrificed in Passover? A lamb. And that lamb's throat would be slit. And that blood would pour out in the basin. They would put that on the basin of the door and on the posts. Do you remember that? Picturing the Lamb of God, eventually the Messiah who would come, who would shed his blood for our redemption price. Jesus said in himself at the Last Supper, when he, he basically turned the Passover into the Last Supper, and he said... This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. And he took that third cup at the end of supper and Passover, and that's where he stopped. And he said, I will not take of the fruit of the vine until you're with me in the kingdom. That fourth cup awaits. Now, the fourth cup we'll see here, the fourth promise. And let's go back to the the text. And this is the fourth promise. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. The Ami with Israel, okay? So here is where God is saying, I'm going to make you a nation. At this point, there were just a people group called Israel, the Hebrews. But now they're going to be made into a nation. That's going to happen at Sinai, okay? So this is their calling. This is what their purpose is, right? This is a corporate choosing. But the idea that you will be my people and I will be your God, this is a corporate relationship God will have with this body, And it's called the cup of praise. Because what this ultimately prefigures is they became a nation at this point, but not all were saved. That's been Israel's history, is that the corporate body is chosen, but the majority won't believe. There's always just a remnant that survives throughout all of history. Even till this day, there's a remnant, according to the Apostle Paul, of Jews who believe still. But the majority of Israel doesn't believe. This promise is yet to be fulfilled in the future. And so that's why we call it the cup of praise. Because at some point, Israel is going to go through the tribulation and all Israel will be saved. All as a corporate body. Every Jew in that corporate body will be saved. And Messiah comes back to rescue them. And then you and I, along with Israel and the Messianic kingdom, will take that fourth cup. Because they have become his people, all of them, and he is their God. That is also promised to the church in Revelation as well. So both corporate entities have the same designation. Israel and the church are called God's people, and he is our God. We enjoy that same aspect. Therefore, we will corporately, with Israel, take the cup of praise to inaugurate the kingdom. We take that cup, that last cup, when we are with God face to face. That's what Israel awaits, and that's our future awaiting as well. So these are the four promises. Now, what's the point? 
These are four actions that God's going to do. This is how he's keeping them on the path. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for you. This is how much I love you. This is how much I care for you. How much I'm going to keep my promises. And then he says, this will be the result. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, or Yahweh, your God. This will be the proof that I am who I say I am. And like we talked about, he's the God of deliverance. He's the God of action. Yahweh's name is a verb. He takes action directly in our lives. And embedded in this paleo name, like I mentioned last week, is behold the hand, behold the nail. If you would have saw God's name in paleo Hebrew, you would have saw behold the nail, behold the hand. What did that point to? Ultimate spiritual deliverance through the Messiah's death on a cross through the nails, right? It's in his name. His name encompasses his action. Amazing, isn't it? And let's go back to the text. And it says, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm going to take you from that burden. And by the way, he took us out of our burdens. We were under a cloud of judgment. We were under that burden we carried around with us. And now he has relieved us of that burden because of being in Messiah. We had judgment on us. Sometimes we didn't know, but we felt it or something happened. And, and we just knew how are we going to escape condemnation? And so now we have been freed from that burden through Messiah. Same thing he's doing physically with Israel. Verse 8. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. And again, I swore is a Hebrew idiom of I made a solemn formal promise to you. So because I'm Yahweh, I'm going to keep it. And note this. I have given you that land as a heritage. It means that you won't just be able to just possess it. You own the land. I'm giving you ownership of it. Therefore, today, if anyone other than the Jewish nation claims ownership of that land, they're going directly against Yahweh. A direct assault against the Abrahamic covenant when they say, that the Jews are occupiers and they don't have a right to that land. Baloney. Everyone else is a squatter other than the Jews. And that's the statement from Scripture. No one should be on that land except the Jews. And people can, they're going to call you all kinds of names for this. But you have to understand, this is one of the dividing lines in Christianity, is how you look at Israel. Anyway, this is perpetual. It keeps going. And he says, I am Yahweh. Again, the Tetragrammaton is given saying uh, it's a relational statement. It's helping the hearer know that I'm a personal God. I'm connected to you. You're connected to me. I know you personally. You know me personally. And I'm going to act on your behalf. Verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses. Oh, no. Because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Yikes. Let's stop there and explain that a little bit. Moses has done like supernatural things in front of Israel. They believed, but then when Moses went and came back and they got more of a workload from Pharaoh, they uh, kind of were disillusioned and said, hey man, what happened here? You were supposed to deliver us. You made our lives harder. And in fact, if, if this is coming from God, God made our lives harder. Let me take a note. This happens to us and a special note about this because... I can tell you this, discouragement and disillusionment will be the things that really get us off the path. That really happens. And I'm going to tell you how it happens. We start having expectations about life, that how we want it to go, and it doesn't happen. They're thinking in their minds that, okay, he's going to deliver us. 
and Moses is going to go in there, and we're going to be set free, and it's all going to be peaches and cream after that. They really think that. But it's going to take 10 plagues to do it. And they think, what happened? Things are not going to my expectation, Moses. And so because of that, unrealistic expectations of life, of what you think God will do for you, what you're going to do for him, and it doesn't work out, becomes the, the first step off the path that people start taking. Well, I guess I'm wrong. I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm useless. God doesn't want to use me. And so they start taking the, the step off. And they take one step and they get further and further off the path. And this is where Israel's going if they don't get stopped. They are getting off the path because of disillusionment, discouragement. I'm going to tell you what, man. This life, the longer I live, the more discouraging it becomes. I'm so ready for the millennial kingdom. I'm so ready to get out of here. I'm so ready for the rapture. This world is is so disappointing. It's so discouraging to keep looking at it and watching people's behavior. I mean, some of the behavior is nauseating. Have you noticed that on TV? They're just out of control, sinful, brutish, like animals. And I'm like, oh boy, howdy, no wonder this world's been turned over. And I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I get it. And so I'm, I, but you can't let it discourage you for doing what he's called you to do. There's no doubt about it. Egypt was bad. But Moses had a task to do. And I want you to see this. Because I want you to see what Yahweh doesn't say to Moses. This is interesting. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now that's simple to understand. But here's what I want you to read into this. What is it that Yahweh doesn't say to Moses? The silence of what God does is more telling. What he does simply is reissue the command. And Moses is is coming to him and saying, man, hey, they're they're not all for this. They're all messed up, and I don't know we should be doing this. And God says, go tell Pharaoh. Keep following me. Just watch what Yahweh doesn't say. Verse 12. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. They don't listen to me, man. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. There you go, Moses. There you go. He, you know what he's saying right there? I want to bail. I want to bail. He's saying that uncircumcised lips is, is the idea that he's trying to say, I'm not skillful in my ability to convince Pharaoh to let him go, so I'm not the right guy. Can you please check and find if you, see if you can find someone else? That's what he's saying. It's again, Moses has already tried to bail out this one time. And this is the second time he's trying to bail out. Okay, have you noticed what Yahweh has said to him? Look in verse 12. There's more being said here that's not spoken. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them their command for the children of Israel and for the Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. What is missing in Yahweh's responses, the two times that Moses has talked to him, what has Yahweh not done? I'll just let you stew on that a little bit. Because that's good. He is not even responding to Moses' excuses. What does Yahweh keep doing? Go tell Pharaoh. Yeah, but the people don't listen. Go tell Pharaoh. I don't circumcise lips. Go tell Pharaoh. Did you catch that? It's like a parent telling the kid who's making excuses of why not to clean the room. Go clean your room. Yeah, but I got to go play with Billy. Go clean your room. Yeah, but I straightened it out. This is as good as it gets. Go clean your room. You see what I'm saying? This is God not reacting to Moses' stupid excuses. He's saying, do what I told you to do. 
See, what happens is when we get disillusioned and we get discouraged by how things are going, we want to make excuses to God and we spiritualize these excuses, whatever they might be. Well, I can't do it because, you know, Lord, I, you know, I'm just not a good time in my life and my life's really upset and, uh, you know, you know, maybe when, when I retire, maybe when I get out of this job, or maybe when I have a new season of life or whatever, then I'll do all these things that you want me to do. And God's saying, go do what I told you to do. And then the funny thing is we'll play a game with God. We won't do what he told us to do, but then we'll want to branch out in these other areas and do other things that are not according to the call. And we'll say, well, Lord, bless me in these areas. And he's like, no, I, I need you to do this. I'm going to take you back to where you got off the path, and I need you to fix this. I need you to start right here. I don't need you doing all this other stuff. I need you doing this. So what he's doing is reorienting Moses, do what I told you to do. Don't argue with me, Moses. And that is a good lesson for you and I. Just do what we're told to do. Now, I don't know what your individual calling is. You only know it. You know the gifts that God has given you. You know the experiences he's given you. You know how he's built you. And so he comes to you and I, and he says, how are you doing on that one? Are you doing what I called you to do? That's all he's going to ask you and I. You could rabbit trail and go all over the different things. Well, I'm doing this, Lord, I'm doing that. He's going to say, I didn't call you to do that. I called you to do this. And that he's being very specific with Moses. And that's important for us to understand. Your gifts will be according to your calling. If you want to know your calling, look at your gifts. And that will tell you where you need to be and what you need to be doing. Let's continue on. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them the command for the children of Israel and for the Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so basically then, that's the command, and they have to go back in there again and repeat the same action that they did the first time. Now, this might be perplexing to you. This is the final point I want to make before I get into the application. When he calls you to do something, do not think that you'll have success the first time you go in. He's going to let you see the failure the first time you go in and say, boy, that didn't work well. And then he's going to call you, go right back again, get back up again. It's like even playing sports or football or baseball or whatever. You get tackled, get up, do the same thing again. You strike out, get back in the batter's box, take your cuts. It's the same thing. Get back until the time is right, Moses. And so that's what he's encouraging us to do. Believe me and just do what I told you to do and don't worry about the results. Okay, application. The application is, and I have it on the screen here, the responsibility for our part to stay on the path is done when we take what is revealed in Scripture about God and His works, or his, basically His agenda, and put to work those truths in our lives. Okay? Simple, but sometimes hard to do. Basically, what it's saying is this. I have revealed who I am. I revealed to you what I do. Past, present, and future. Therefore, I need you to act in faith based on what you know of me. And that's, that's basically how our sanctification happens. This is why Paul will say this in Philippians 2.12. He'll say, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice the two attitudes. With fear, that you're fearing disobeying God, and trembling means you're dependent on God. 
But working out your salvation doesn't mean earning salvation. This has to do with growing to become obedient and become more like Christ. That's your calling primarily. That's your baseline right there is to become more like Christ. Okay. So then let's dig a little bit deeper about that. There are two aspects to working out your salvation that you have to keep in mind and you have to keep balanced. Let me show you the two. The first one is relationships. The second one is laboring. Now, let me explain both, but understand that these both have to be kept in concert with each other in balance as you work out your salvation, as you grow in the Lord. Let's talk about relationships. There's two types of relationship. Your vertical relationship with God and then your horizontal relationship with other people. Okay? There's that aspect of growth that has to be maintained, your vertical and your horizontal relationships, okay? And here's the deal. It comes back to the greatest commands, love God and love others. Okay, got that. Now, in order to grow and become like Christ, you have to have two specific types of relationships. First, you must have a relationship where someone is mentoring you, someone is taking you through something. And it could be for seasons, it could be for a time, or it could be lifelong. I don't know. It just depends. The other relationship you have to have is someone underneath you that you are mentoring. So you've got to have both aspects. Someone that's mentoring you, and you're mentoring others. So in your growth pattern with the Lord, this aspect must be maintained. Okay. At the same time, you must have laboring as you work out your salvation. What do you mean? Well, laboring has to do with your disciplines to grow and also your service to the Lord, your disciplines to grow and your service to the Lord. So you must do the disciplines that you knew, the works, to grow, and you must serve. Now, both have to be balanced. It's easy to understand, but it's hard to keep in balance because some people get all relationship-oriented, but they never serve. They have good relationships with people, but they never grow, nor do they serve. The opposite is true as well. Some people serve, and they focus in on their own growth, but they don't have any relationships with anybody. They're not mentoring or being mentored. If we go one side to the other, you will not be able to properly work out your salvation or grow to become like Christ because you must maintain both. And unfortunately, one will be overemphasized over the other based on your experiences with people or based on your personality or whatever. And this is the crux of how we grow. Now, let me show you this guy real quick. This is Michael Nicholson. He's 71 years old of Kalamazoo, Michigan. He has earned 29 degrees. Now pursuing his 30th, he has a bachelor's degree, two associate's degree, 22 master's degree, three specialist degrees, and one doctorate degree. Currently working on a master's in criminal justice. He says, I would like to have 33 or 34 when I'm done. And then he said, when I complete that, I feel like I've completed just my basic education. Okay, where do you go from there? He goes, if I'm still alive, I'd like to be taking classes when I'm 80 and 81 and pursuing higher levels of education. He goes, eventually, I want to try to get as many degrees as I possibly can. Gotcha. This guy's really never had a job. Does that shock you? He's been a lifelong student, but he's never applied what he knows. There's all these degrees but he never works at any of the degrees. And he actually had these menial jobs, and then he retired at 65 so he could take more classes. And he just keeps piling up more degrees and more degrees. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of believers are. They've accumulated so much knowledge of who God is and what he does, 
but you never really see it come out in their life. They never really act upon it. Let's not be like Michael Nicholson, who we accumulate knowledge of who God is, and you and I can tell people how many angels dance on the head of a pen, and we can say if Adam had a navel or not, and we know those facts and figures. But if it never comes out in our real life, then we're just like him, earning degrees after degrees and never applying them. Let's think about that because we're supposed to be active. The Lord works, we work. He's active, we're active. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.